0: listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the witch of Southern Light.
1: And I'm Austin Bean x Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a guest, friend, uh, acquaintance. Um, uh, we have Nicholas Pearson with us. Nicholas is an author, um, a Gemologist. I don't know if that's an official title for you, but Nicholas, please tell us about yourself.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm all of those things, I guess. Uh, The short version of my bio is I really like rocks. Um, We we can maybe go on an expanded version if you like, but um, yeah, I just I'm I'm so fascinated by the intersection between the human kingdom and the mineral kingdom. And although it's not the only part of my practice, I guess it's definitely the thing people know best about me. I'm also a practicing witch and occultist. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not all love and light, woohoo, let's rub some amethyst on it and make it better. Like, you know, there's, there's some, some deeper, darker, spookier things in my practice as well that I, I keep for me. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really excited to join you both today.
1: I welcome. wanted to well yeah, welcome. I wanted to break in real quick um because we know each other pre me having this page. I think you still had um your page, Luminous Pearl. Um and I think I followed you like back when I did hair on like my hair Instagram and we lived in um, a, uh, like the same city, I won't say which one, but like, I would see you like out and about and you would see me out and about. And then we were just kind of like, it was very interesting to like mingle with each other. And um, you were actually really helpful for um, this really big part of my practice, uh, especially when I started when I first moved back to where I was living at the time. And just being able to kind of have some sense of direction—it was—it was really, really lovely. So it's kind of weird to see each other in this space now. It's really cute. I like it.
2: I love it. The the glow up is evident. The the occult
1: glow up. <laughs> yeah, the occult glow up. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was. It was. It's been great watching the journey, and um, I I miss our chat. So maybe maybe we'll have a, a less virtual version of that sometime soon.
1: Yes, I hope
0: so. Okay, so tell me, did y'all do anything to celebrate Halloween or Samhain or All Hallows? Um, what did y'all do?
2: I am a workaholic, so I, I had to work the day job on on Halloween itself. But I had a, a quiet, private celebration at home. Um, my husband and I lit some uh, mulling torches and did our own kind of quiet observance here in the house uh, i also taught the day before a class on crystal skulls and really like working with them as doorways to the spirit realm so i i did a lot of quiet reflection after that and did my own kind of private we'll say uh, ancestral ceremony with with some rocks because if there's not rocks in it there's no point right
0: in my life <laughs> Of course. Of course. Uh, can you? Would you mind sharing a little bit more information about the mullin torches? I've seen them, but I'd love to hear like your perspective of, of why you use them and, and what they are a part of your practice and what they're for.
2: Yeah. So um, I've been on this real big journey with plants for the last, well, while, but very publicly over the last year and a half, two years. And um, it kind of started with just getting to know the the indigenous plants of Florida. And then one thing kind of led to another. And I went down the flower essence route, the plant spirit route. So um, mulling as a plant ally is something that I really love. Those big fuzzy leaves, the tall stalks of inflorescence, um, even just to see them in full bloom is kind of reminiscent of a the flame atop a candle or, or a torch. So they have this kind of fiery quality to them. And traditionally here in North America where mulling grows, um, they'll they'll dip it in we'll say fats of different kinds, whether that's beeswax or or other things, tallow, um, and light them as candles. So uh, mulling is sometimes associated with the spirit realm. It's that kind of witch fire, um, the torch we might see carried at the crossroad by whoever is the gatekeeper of that crossroad in our tradition. So on such a liminal time and space like Samhain or Halloween, I find mulling torches to be an appropriate form of illumination. And had I the time and energy and space, I might have, you know, gone full blown and made a circle with them at the, the quarters. But instead, we just did a real quiet, private thing and uh, put them in a pot of dirt so that way they wouldn't smoke up the house and took them outside and on the patio. But it's definitely got this quality of learning to listen. Moline in flower essence therapy deals a lot with our ability to, to truly hear and perceive others. But on a spiritual level, it's learning how to hear and perceive our allies in spirit, whether those are our ancestors or spirits that we have kind of a familiar relationship with, or whether we work in the angelic space, whoever our team in spirit is, I find mulling to be very good for illuminating the relationship and making sure that we're receptive enough to not just talk all the time, which is a very human thing to
1: do.
0: Definitely, I know I struggle with that sometimes. <laughs>
1: I um I think Corinne Boyer in Under the Bramble Art she has this really good recipe for making hag tapers or like where you dip the the mullen in um tallow or beeswax um I know I I haven't had success with that particularly because like you were saying Nicholas the indigenous mullen that we have in Florida is it's called um Juan Mullen if you are familiar I don't know did you make your the the hag tapers that you had made or did you buy them
2: oh I definitely found them on Etsy
1: (laughs) okay okay no that that's totally great the the ones here um because the stock is so thin it's not like regular um Mullen which the the name is slipping me the scientific name um, but the the of like the mullen that you'll get for hag tapers are like really thick mm-hmm. and they're like about the size of like a, a candle and then the ones here they're very thin and they they wilt really easily and you have to like cut it down really far on the stock if you want to get like a nice thick uh hag taper but that's really really dope I love um I love mullen candles
2: yeah they're
1: they're they're fun Marshall, what did you do for Halloween?
0: On Halloween weekend itself, um, I put on about like 15 pounds of candy, uh, which is is why I'm starving myself now. No, but uh, I I did. I still have candy in my freezer that I've been trying not to eat, but I literally just watched probably 30 to 125 scary movies because that's just what I really love to do on Halloween. But um, on... Samhain, which technically, I guess, was yesterday on the 6th, because m- for me personally, I was focusing more on the astrological date for the magical working, while on Halloween, I have had a lot I mean, we talked about this in the- on the uh, Halloween episode I just, I love my long-standing childhood tradition of scary movies and junk food, but um, yesterday I, <laughs> I I, asked a dear friend for a recipe for Dragon's Blood, ink. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Go on. Oh,
0: Austin, was that dear friend, by the way? <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, and everybody knows that I'm like. Everybody comes to me, like, "Oh, you do all this like pigment stuff. You do all this ink stuff." And so Marshall was like, "Can you give me this ink recipe?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Um, and what happened, Marshall?
0: So, I I took the like what like white vinegar and a bunch of uh Draco Cinnabari, which is like the medieval dragon's blood uh powder
1: by my prescription.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Of course. I like one does. And so funny enough actually, you had told me to use gum arabic and it turns out I thought I had that but actually I actually had benzoin gum. Um I don't know why I'm even telling that part of the story. It didn't make any difference whatsoever because I never even got to put that in, but um uh I put a little bit of the vinegar into a saucepan and just warmed it up a little bit and then I started adding the powdered uh dragon's blood and it immediately turned into a solid ball of goop and I tried to heat it up more to see if that would dissolve it in the vinegar more because you know vinegar can be uh, quite a good solvent Um, softer than like alcohol uh, or or if you're trying to use something in substitute of. And the more I cooked it, the more it just cooked to my pan. And it didn't, it, di- it barely turned the water kind of like a reddish orange, or not the water, the vinegar, like a reddish orange. And I just kept going and eventually the whole house like stunk of vinegar and not dragon's blood for some reason. And finally I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go ahead and call it. This, 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 one is not working out for me. And then I tried alcohol instead, like equal parts, uh, like two t- tablespoons of the Draco Cinnabari and two tablespoons of, uh, I think it was Everclear. Actually, it was a high concentrated alcohol and I just mixed it in a bowl. And then I would just set a timer for 15 minutes and stir it up, man, that did the trick. I was shocked. I even strained that and used the same melted gunk of of dragon's blood and added two more tablespoons of alcohol ended up creating like a good four tablespoon uh strained amount of dragon's blood ink and what's really great is it actually the recipe didn't even call for gum arabic to thicken it if you want to thicken it you can take the lid off and just let some of the alcohol evaporate a little bit um but definitely want to keep that sealed it's ever clear my gosh what is that like when 120 proof 140 proof i'm not sure it's
1: it's gonna be at least 140
0: at least Uh, least 140
1: or at least 120 Um, i think
0: yeah and then and then last night i actually waited till till exactly midnight on the cross quarter day to do a specific ritual working to bless this ink that i'm going to use and um future petitions sigils a lot of kind of all-purpose manifestation magic manifestation I said it. I did. I said it. I'm triggered. I'm I'm triggered. triggered. Uh, I ended up making that ink, and it was really great. I I really loved it. Um, I added a few extra things that I prefer not to say on here, just because it's personal to my practice. But um, that will be my my magical ink over the next year or so (laughs) that I'll use. And of course, you know, I also bought that belladonna ink from Poisoner's Apothecary, uh, so I'll use that for other types of working
1: things.
0: Other things. What about you? Me?
1: Um, I was uh in San Francisco over, well, like the past uh ten days, and I was with some amazing friends that I'm sure everybody saw my stories on, and everyone is aware. And I'll save, I'll spare everybody the poet, the poetics, and the tears and the, um all the goopiness and I I'll just say I had a lot of fun um and yeah there was some very very interesting nefarious stuff going on on Halloween night at at Golden Gate Park um with my friend Keanu and uh before that I had made um pumpkin duck risotto for a big group of people um and it was delicious and wonderful and
0: I saw that in your stories. It looked really good.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And the next day um, for lunch, we, we had so much like pumpkin duck risotto left over that we um, I made like arancini by like rolling it up uh, with some egg in it and like breading it and deep frying it. And it was really delicious. Yum. Mm.
0: Well, let's get into some crystals. What do you say? Some
1: rock, some crystals, some things. So, S- Nicholas, you are kind of known for, I mean, you do a lot of things. Um, I I know I've gotten to like kind of pick your brain like very briefly a little bit about your practice and what you do. I know you have a book um, on plant essences, but a lot of the work that you do is um, surrounding minerals. And um, I think that's really fascinating, especially as like somebody who doesn't incorporate that much mineral stuff into their practice. Um, so could you like, could you go into a little bit about your your background a little growing up? Like what what led you to this path down this path? What's going on? Let's, yeah. let's pick your brain oh. a little bit. Totally. So like, if we
2: go back in time, little Nicholas was that kid who picked up a rock everywhere he went. So, I mean, really exotic locations like family vacations to the mountains, far out of Florida, where I'm from, of course, Um, going to the seashore, find that rock rolling in the waves, or super exotic locations, like the grocery store parking lot, like any place you can find a rock, it just spoke to me. There's no other way to describe it. Maybe not in words, but certainly in essence, there's just this huge draw. And my grandfather must have observed this behavior over and over again. Um, and he gifted me my very first piece of quartz, which, you know, at the time was like the coolest rock I'd ever seen. Um, but, you know, I would later come to be able to identify like where it comes from and exactly what it is and all, all that other fun kind of scientific stuff. But like the first time I had my hands around a piece of quartz crystal, suddenly stone was transmuted in a way. It was transformed from this kind of inert part of the landscape that I felt connected to. but didn't really seem to serve a higher function, except that it reassured or comforted or spoke to me in some way. now it was pure magic. I mean, if you look at a little kid holding a a raw piece of quartz and let them play in the sunlight, they're going to see that this is a magical object. Uh, It is no surprise that in every period in human history that's had access to something like quartz, they have attributed to it some sort of magical, mystical, curative power um and you know around the same time period of my life uh when other families did the church thing on Sundays my dad and I would go to the public library every couple of weeks or if I read a lot of books very quickly every week and that kind of became our our own family ritual so I wasn't brought up in a particularly religious space but um, I was particularly attracted to themes of folklore and fairy tale and mythology, and world religion. Since I wasn't being force-fed anything kind of religious, I sought it out in other ways. But my dad was also a science guy, and I've always loved science. So you know, even even though I had to read things that were written for an age-appropriate audience, I was still devouring earth science one week and biology or botany or whatever else I could get my hands on, all the kind of natural sciences. And it didn't take me too long to notice that like the myths we find around the world, the the folk tales and fairy tales are describing the same natural phenomena in a different set of vocabulary. And um, what we think of as discrete hard science today, things we can quantify and objectively measure and trace were always discussed and described in terms of metaphor. And I don't really think that ancient people were far less learned or advanced than us and and maybe genuinely personified every natural phenomenon um, in a simplistic or dare I say primitive way, because I mean, that's, that's such a colonial term, right? Primitive, um, but just to see that using using the language using the metaphors they had they were describing the same same phenomenon the world around me that just fascinated me to no end so um eventually i found like the perfect intersection of like the mystical and the scientific in crystal healing i'd always kind of loved rocks and then i eventually stumbled across a a small number of books at the time metaphysical and occult publishing wasn't back then what it is today and the accessibility of it was far different without the influence of the internet. Um, but you know, it, it, people had to fill in the gaps. So they had their personal experiences, maybe channeled information that would come through working with stones. And then there was a body of folklore And sometimes they would kind of tie the two together and sometimes they wouldn't, but I was really fascinated by how we could kind of create this sense of continuity between science and spirituality in that. And so that's kind of the place where I specialized my focus. I eventually went away to college to study music and got randomly assigned, if we can believe in this big of a happenstance. Um, I got randomly assigned to work in an earth science museum that I didn't know existed on campus that's home to the largest collection in the southeastern United States Um, and so like I became, uh, I, I was given access to a mineral collection, the likes of which I'd never dreamed of, I was permitted to like check rocks out of the museum like there were books in a library and take them home over the weekend and like bring them back as long as everything was in the same shape and I only talked science in those four walls I could, I could really learn anything I wanted so I got a lot of. We'll say hands on self taught experience learning mineral science and although I I my academic story is is colorful and incomplete. Uh, It was a really important formative experience, and I've maintained a really good relationship with the museum and university ever since and um, actually just just last week was lecturing there about this concept of lapidary medicine or crystal healing through the ages. So uh, yeah, one that's It's just kind of been the thread I've, I've been pursuing all along. So, you know, I went down the witchcraft and neo paganism route. I've certainly done sort of vibrational healing, integrative medicine route. And those are things that I, I publicly practice and teach about as well as very privately incorporate into my life. But rocks have been the mainstay of what people know me for.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned something about the intersection of science and magic when it comes to crystals and minerals. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was learning that uh, Black obsidian, has proven to actually help absorb radiation. Um, is, that, is that untrue? Am I wrong on that?
2: Um, I, I suppose it kind of depends on, on, on what we mean by prove. I've seen some studies that are maybe um, empirically oriented but not peer reviewed uh, sure. that look at, at that kind of thing. And I, I'm big on like um, qualitative data is still data. Uh, I had uh, um, a colleague doing this really great uh, presentation for like a a Reiki summit. And she had us, you know, take inventory, you know, judge, you know, with an objective scale that they use in modern medicine, our positive mental affect, or we'll just say our our mental affect, affect, hopefully it's positive, right? Um, And then engage in a Reiki practice for not even 60 seconds and then do the same kind of scale. And she goes, okay, you've just collected data it's not peer reviewed, but you've collected data. So um, I, I definitely believe that um, the, the things that have been published in the more woo woo kind of realm as far as that are, are important. Um, I know of a French researcher that's done some research kind of comparing the effects of electromagnetic fields, both the, the subtle kind and the measurable kind with stuff. Um, her focus was on Shungite. She wanted to compare and contrast it to other things, but uh, obsidian was one of the things that was included in her study. And she I mean, she translated her experience and her uh, repeated experiments into quantitative data. So even if it's not peer reviewed, there, there is stuff out there. And I think we're starting to see a, a shift in the dominant narratives about how crystals work. There's a lot of pseudoscience, and I admit that a lot of what I do is pseudoscientific only because we haven't found an objective way to measure everything. And I'm okay if we never do. I'm, I'm fully, fully committed to surrendering to mystery, if that's what we got to do. Um, I think there are models that can describe how crystals work in the realms of physics. There are models that describe a sort of electromagnetic component to it. There are models that describe um, many kinds of interactions that might be happening on a subtle level, but at the heart of it, I'm still an animist. I believe there's a spirit, there's a consciousness in these things, and we, we can't quantify the human soul either. So I don't expect to be able to quantify the the soul in this smoky quartz either. So
1: um, I'm, I'm. I like just that. Fine. I like that you just pulled that out too. <laughs> like I like that you just pulled that. Out. Yeah. It's you this know. Giant like cucumber size piece of fucking.
0: <laughs> A uh, smoky quartz, so, oh my Ooh, goodness. big, so big. Too big. No, I'm just kidding, oh my God. Well, I was uh, just thinking, I thought it was really funny when I learned yeah. that I saw some data that was talking about um, experimentation showing that uh, uh, black obsidian can absorb radiation. And I think it was really interesting because we've had a long association with black obsidian banishing negativity. And I just thought what an interesting kind of combo to see that there is an actual like basis in theory when it comes to under scientifically, when it comes to the actual magic. So for me, I love black obsidian I've always loved it. I think it's a great thing to have in your jewelry and and talismans to have around the house that's been charged with the uh, assignment to banish negativity from your space. Um, I just thought, wow, what an interesting intersection of science and magic to kind of come together. And, and obviously this is kind of, it's long been associated with that, long before we even kind of knew specifically that it had that possibility.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think one of the, one of the, the coolest things about this is that there is a sort of intuitive knowing that we see um, a really great example not directly related to the mineral kingdom is, I mean, if you look at ethnobotanists who go in the field and the end result of a lot of ethnobotany is we end up with medicines derived from plants that are found all over. And it seems like the ethnobotanists are always really surprised to learn how indigenous people find out what plants do. They really expect them to say, oh, well, Uncle Fred had too much of this one and he didn't make it. But Aunt Tilly over here, she had just the right amount and it cured her, her illness. And it's never that kind of trial and error experimentation. It's always like, well, the plant told us. It, it told us what to use it for, how much to use, and under what circumstances, how we should combine it with other things. And I think the same is true with rocks. If you look at how, Um, cultures who could not communicate if obsidian being a great example. If you look at one of the primary uses of it in Central and South America to make um, scrying mirrors and other kind of reflective surfaces, the same use for obsidian is found in the Anatolian Peninsula and like modern-day Turkey in places like where they they made these sort of scrying divinatory mirrors uh, prehistoric, pre-written word. And we find cultures that were so far apart that lived in different different eras, intuitively doing the same thing from the same stone. Like Obviously there has to be this kind of spirit or consciousness-based relationship there. So of, of course it's such an insulative and protective kind of stone, it deflects harmful energies. And that's something we see echoed throughout the archeological record. It's something we see uh, reinforced through uh, ancient medieval modern crystal lore. Um, there's There is this really deep archetypal force to stones and that's that's the level I'm most drawn to this this very prescriptive like carries from rose quartz for love doesn't satisfy me like why why specifically are we associating these two things and sometimes the associations are super shallow and sometimes we can find a deeper mechanism but when we can find that that deeper component that that inner working that's where I get the most satisfied and that's where I really want to spend time having the conversations with people.
0: Absolutely, I was thinking about what you were talking Mm -hmm. about when when we look at a lot of older plant lore and how they ended up becoming majorly used medicines. We look at poppy when it comes to pain relief now. Mm -hmm. We look at belladonna when it comes to things with the heart and the uh, uh, dilation of the eyes uh, Mm -hmm. that your eye doctor uses almost every single time you go once a year, Uh, digitalis also for the heart. And it is one of those things that i can see i can visualize the whole grandpa took too much and didn't make it grandma did but it it obviously wasn't quite like that because they knew how to kind of work with some of these plants it's kind of fascinating and it really does go especially when you talk about animism to the spirit of that plant the spirit of that crystal that mineral um i'm fascinated to talk about that
2: yeah it's it's such a profound thing and you know, even even scientists, I, I have friends who are geologists and geochemists and soil engineers and people who work in like very like cut and dry hard science fields around rocks. Um, they are super wonderful people. They they love the quantitative data. They're also really superstitious. They have a lot of respect for the land and the people who live there and the traditions that are there. Um, and it's, it's really fun to see that translate to this, this, Field that we might think of as being like very quantitative and very analytical and very uninspired, but there is a life and a soul to the world we live in, and uh, it doesn't—it doesn't take a lot of imagination to find out why.
1: I think it was um, Sabrina Scott, uh, who is a—I believe her degree is in—it's—it's um, it's a, a, a philosophy of science. Um, so I, I, and a lot of like the work that she does is, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but in her speaking, a lot of the time she'll like kind of dissuade this, like this pop science myth that like science has no place for the animistic spirit, which is, is in speaking with people who actually do science and don't just digest what science magazine puts out. Um, they're like, no, no, it's, it's quite an esoteric career, it, you have to measure it, of course, but like it, you know, and and, and we think on occultism um, and and science, occultism and science and, until about like the 1800s was, they were very quite similar. Um, they went hand in hand, you know, and, and there are problems with that and there are benefits to that, but yeah, it's just, it's very interesting um, to know that science is really it's quite a not I, I don't think it's what people think it is I, I guess is what I'm trying to say I'm um, just knowing the handful of people I, I do know uh, who do work in labs and and things like that
2: yeah I mean some of the scientists I know are some of the most superstitious people when it comes to that lab equipment um, I mean, that, yeah
1: she, she's a little temperamental like today she's a little temperamental um it, i wanted to to bring it back real quick about some it's funny that you brought up scrying mirrors because this is where i was uh going to go with like a brief cute little history of of some uh crystal stuff especially for like cunning folk and uh, witches and um i think it's very interesting so i know we have the idea um in modernity, about like the scrying mirror being like what we use to scry and until actually I believe it was John Dee who uh at least in Europe who brought back like a scrying mirror from Mesoamerica like that that was really that wasn't really as big of a thing but like we would uh he used like a clode glass which if you are not sure what that is it's like a um it's like a a makeup it's like a makeup compact compact. (laughs) and it is a little concave yeah uh, or convex actually it kind of like bubbles out a little bit and you would like hold it it's for it was for painting it was a painting tool to like shadow the colors um behind you so you would like look at everything behind you and you would paint that but that's um what john d would use and then i think he also got some like light larger um like show stones or shoe stones that you would like carry on a chain almost like a pocket watch and that's what you would use to describe to it before that like scrying you could like do it in your thumbnail uh, you mm-hmm. could do it in a piece of, of green glass or you know people would use whatever and it was a lot of times done during the day which I find very interesting it was um not done at night by candlelight like a lot of people do nowadays it was usually done when the sun was out which I find interesting
2: yeah, there's there's a lot of lore from like the classical time frame that connects um, particularly quartz lenses to the imagery of the sun and the cosmos. And I think that is something that's largely ignored by kind of the occult sphere in general. But, you know, before humankind had a consistent way to produce optical quality glass, if you could find optical quality quartz, you could cut it into lenses and spheres and burning globes that had like practical associations but if something is such an extraordinary medium like clear quartz um, that already has lore associated with it uh, even a practical tool has deeper spiritual meaning that the effort it takes to make a a a perfectly round globe even a small one in 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 the classical era uh, you, you don't do something like that arbitrarily you don't do that just to magnify your work you don't just do that to you know, have a, a beautiful object, it, it's obviously got to be imbued with meaning if someone is going to go to that great length to produce it. And um, like the Orphic cult has this great symbolism of like the crystal sun, like the, they described the sun that we experience is actually a three-part phenomenon. There's like the ambient light of the cosmos, a great crystal sphere that collects it. And then the light we see um, refracted through that is, is what we perceive as the sun. And it became this kind of We'll um, say metaphor for how human souls incarnate. We, we ourselves are kind of diffused from the greater light of the cosmos, the, the great the great, I guess, primordial soup of all souldom of, of, of creator, however, however they use their language to describe it, and kind of refracted through our own lens. So we were our own little incident ray of light coming incarnate. So using a, a globe or sphere or crystal lens, for any kind of spiritual work would be enhanced by doing it during the daytime when that ambient light is actually visible. Um, so there's a, a really profound link to scrying in daytime that, that comes from that timeframe and probably just
0: got lost in translation along the way.
1: That's very fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Now You've written a few books, actually, I was looking, I was looking it up online. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and one of them is there behind you, uh, the Crystal Basics. What was your process of, of writing some of these? Do you have one that's just like your baby right now? Or, or, is, or is this like, just you, it, as it comes to you, it just comes and you've got to get it out of you?
2: A little bit of both. I mean, they're all my babies in some way. Uh, Crystal Basics is my most recent release. It came out almost two years ago, the two years in, in February. So like just ahead of the pandemic really hitting full-blown. Um, and it was my sixth book. So all my others are kind of hanging out on the shelf over here stacked up. But um, my, my first book was actually inspired by a piece of obsidian in my pocket. One day I'm driving to work when I had my corporate America gig in luxury retail. And I just had this profound realization that wherever you go in the world, um, if obsidian has been found by a pre-modern culture, it's been used for the same basic ideas, sharp things and shiny things, or more poetically, we might say the spear point and the mirror, and that kind of prototypic archetypal role that it has played in society across the world kind of inspired the concept for the seven archetypal stones, so uh, I whittled down a list of many stones that kind of fit the bill that have those archetypal uses and and settled on seven arbitrarily it could have been like the 45 archetypal stones but it would have been too thick and nobody would have read it so um seven is a great number it's a magical number we like it there are seven classical planets and luminaries and angels associated with them and metals and all that jazz so i just i i set on seven but every one has been this really kind of big learning opportunity for me my first couple books are like really more on the esoteric side deeper things. Um, it took me until my sixth book to write my beginner book on crystals, and like my beginner book on crystals is not the average one. It opens with geology, like you gotta, you gotta understand what these things really are to understand what they're going to do for us. And if you're just a prescriptive kind of crystal person, you just want to carry x rock for y condition in your life, the second half of the book does that for you. So you can kind of skip there, but it's full of hands-on praxis because I'm, I'm tired of crystal encyclopedias that don't actually tell you what to do with rocks. Like, okay, Rose Quartz is great for love, amethyst is good for intuition. Now, how do I make that happen? What do I have to do to engage in a meaningful relationship, to have this kind of relevant experience in my life to see that kind of end result? And a lot of crystal books kind of leave you guessing on that, or they get so reductive that you don't really understand the why. So um, my my ulterior motive for every book I've ever written has been hopefully teaching people how to think for themselves and think. Um, through their relationships with crystals instead of just getting at that prescriptive level start to say okay I'm looking for a blue stone for my throat chakra well maybe I don't have to be limited to the color blue but why why am I looking for a stone for my throat chakra like what's what's really holding me back from communicating and instead of just going okay I'm going to take a piece of aquamarine or blue lace agate going what is the cycle I'm experiencing in my life what role am I playing in that cycle what tool is going to catalyze the behavior to get me out of the cycle. So if we're not relying on a crystal as a magic bullet, this is not going to fix everything, but there are tools of self reflection, like what, what can I do to effect change. Um, or even on the magical level, what, what stone spirit best partners with this project that I've got, not what is this inert tool that I'm going to make do a thing, because I think even our most most ordinary magical tools you know if we are athame or knife wielders or wand wielders or candle lighters there's a spirit in all those things too and if we're really doing the work we are partnering with the spirits of those things and not using them as inert matter and if we can do that with our holy personal tools we can do that with our rocks too
0: no, I completely agree. There are so many times that I will, because I like to dabble in social media every now and again. And so I will sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes make TikToks or videos or explanations of simple, I call them bare bone spells. So I'm giving you the outline and you can take it and, and amplify it or bring it down or change it and make it work for you. Um, and there are many times that I will say use this Uh, use this stone or use this plant and they'll be like, I don't have that stone. What should I do instead? And I'm like, okay, so what I hear when I hear that is there needs to be a level of education as to why this stone does what it does, why I'm using it for this specific purpose. And if you need, don't have that one and you need a substitution, we need to kind of go back to the why of this. What are you using it for? Because no matter where you are, there's something you can use. Um, especially as an animist, as, as a folk witch, I know that if I don't have a certain herb, I have to go back to the herb and its purpose, its its reason why, the spirit of of what it carries as a virtue, and then I. I can kind of go to a list of other ingredients or other like a spirit allies ingredients plants that may have those similar virtues and kind of substitute in. And a lot of times when it comes to crystals, I feel like, honestly, plants or crystals, I have noticed sometimes that lack of discernment in, mm. in this, this society of encyclopedias of, and don't get me wrong, I have I have Scott Cunningham's encyclopedia of magical herbs and crystals. Um, but I actually really, really like that you are talking about, Was is that, specifically in uh, Crystal Basics?
2: Um, I mean, that that level of thinking through the why and the how is present in all of my books. Crystal Basics gives people kind of my approach to figuring out the at least the measurable reasons why at the end of the day, a spirit is a spirit like, there are things that I use Rodonite for that don't appear in any of my books or any other extant literature because the spirit of Rodonite and the spirit of Nicholas go way back. And we have grown so much together that that's a spirit ally I can contact to do work, maybe maybe not on its regular resume. You know, think think of a description in one of these encyclopedias as like the standard CV you give out at a job fair, but there's other stuff you do that's that's not there. There's, there's more experience than you can fit on that page, right? So, um, I, I'm hoping that someone reading my books and seeing the thought process and everything is gonna be able to start thinking that way. Like, oh, this is an igneous rock. I know, I know that igneous rocks kind of work in this way, or I know that this is iron rich and iron kind of has this energy associated with Mars and ambition and drive and it's grounding uh, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm hoping that people understand the how and the why, even if it's just a little bit at a time, through through each book, but Crystal Basics goes real deep into those sort of at least geological inner workings, still paying tribute to the fact that like we can't summarize things neatly in boxes. Just because it's an igneous rock, it's an iron oxide uh, with a trigonal structure. We can say hematite is those three things and it does this. We can go to color, we can go to hardness, but there's still something that just can't be summarized by those qualities. We can look at folklore and maybe find places that illustrate the how and the why, but there's still that essence. There's still that ineffable quality. And people, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see more and more people starting to partner with the consciousness and stones and getting to that place where they're really thinking things through.
0: It's funny you mentioned hematite, because one <laughs> of the things that I see in a lot of online spaces are, especially in like Facebook groups and people who are questioning new seekers, um, sometimes I feel like as new practitioners, a lot of information gets filtered through the internet nowadays. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I see so often is um, my hematite hematite ring just broke. What does it mean? And while I'm not denying the fact that there could possibly be a, a, a larger spiritual or witchy meaning behind it, a lot of times, people are unaware that hematite is a much softer stone. It's going to break a little bit easier. I think, is it true that when it heats up, it actually makes it a little bit more easier to, to snap or to to crack? Um, I literally just was standing there in line at a buffet at a wedding. I don't know why you had to know it was a wedding. That's not really a good story, <laughs> but I was just staying there waiting for my food and patiently, and it just, bam, cracked right off my finger. And I was like, now I know that meant nothing it was I know I know it didn't mean anything but that can be so that can be hard to explain for some people when it comes to the discernment between what something truly is trying to tell you in a symbol and not understanding the geology and mineral base of the stone you're working with
1: it's actually because I cursed you
0: oh okay (laughs) never mind erase all that I'll cut this
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah you know it's
2: I never want to invalidate someone's personal experience. Mm-hmm. I can't stand in your shoes and tell you definitively what happened in, in this kind of thing. But you know, here's here's a fun little fact about those hematite rings. And I might be bursting some bubbles, which I'm really good at and almost never contrite enough about. Um, they're not really made of hematite. I know, gas, shock. Um, so tell made me more, tell of- me more. She said, yeah. I'm going to
1: give you an education today. <sighs>
2: so they're, they're made out of a synthetic iron compound called ferrite. It is still an iron oxide. Um, chemical formula is slightly different, crystal structure slightly different. The main reason hematite rings break is because they're made out of powdered ferrite that gets annealed in a kiln. So you take a powder, you heat it up, it becomes a solid bro- block, um, but it was still a powder in the first place. There's still gonna be inconsistencies in its structure. So even when they cut and polish that block, there are gonna be little weaknesses. So the he- reason hematite rings break is because they're brittle, they're fragile. They were once a powder, um, you know, I am brittle and fragile too. I was once a powder, it feels like some days. So, you know, I've got those same kind of weaknesses. All it takes is that one little tap some days and it's gonna break. Um, So that doesn't mean it's devoid of metaphysical qualities. Iron. Throughout the ages, has been considered to be really protective. We see iron ores and iron talismans and iron-rich gemstones like carnelian, which gets its color from natural particles of hematite inside the agate or chalcedony structure, all being used for potropaic functions. So certainly, you can empower one of those synthetic ferrite rings being sold as hematite and use it as a protective ward. You totally can, um, but it doesn't. It 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 doesn't have the longevity. Uh, just just by virtue of what it is, it's, it's a brittle thing. So I think it's helpful Same. to remind people that- Right, yeah. <laughs> it's helpful to remind people that, sure, there can be a mystical reason for everything. Sometimes the reason you sneezed is because the pollen count is high. There, there is no metaphysical reason for the symptoms you've got except you're allergic to pine pollen and pine pollen is everywhere. Uh, but I sneezed bit, three
0: times in a row, what does that mean? Uh,
2: sorcery. <laughs> that, that time it was my curse. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I knew
0: it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. I got that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so sometimes the, the deeper metaphysical reason that things happen is because humans are clumsy. We break our crystals. We lose our crystals. There's not necessarily something more to that. And although it's a normal human thing to seek meaning in everyday experiences, it can also be really disempowering. If your hematite rings and you think the universe is out to get you, it takes power away from you rather than giving you power over the situation, which might be the reason you bought it in the first place. Like sometimes a thing is a thing and we got to move on. So I, I really, I strive to remind people that we, situations have as much power over us as we tend to give them. That is not always true, but we we can't we can't be worst case scenario all the time. We also can't be best case scenario all the time. Sometimes
1: things just happen.
0: That's very true.
1: My tiger's eye. I can't, I can't leave without my tiger's eye.
0: (laughs) Um, I was just going to ask about um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is talking about the differences between understanding crystal and glass And I know that was one of the things, because I'm not saying that glass can be any less powerful whatsoever, but there is something special about the crystalline structure that makes it different. Um, I know, I literally remember asking my mom when I was younger, like, why can I have this glass and not this one? And she'd be like, because that one's crystal. And I didn't understand the difference. Can you tell some of our listeners like what some of those major differences really are?
2: Yeah, so the definition of a crystal
0: is that it is a
2: usually solid substance with a regular composition. So it's more or less the same stuff all the way throughout. And that stuff is always arranged in the same repeating structure. And that structure is called a crystal lattice. So what we think of as a crystal might be, you know, a big old chunk of quartz or calcite, but also like sugar and salt are crystalline. We have components in our teeth and bones and hair and nails and everywhere throughout the human body that are crystalline or semi-crystalline or liquid crystals. So we we have a lot of these same kind of fundamental units inside us too, right? I mean, we are gemstones and don't let anyone sell you on anything different. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so glass on the other hand, from a material science perspective is a super cooled liquid. So obsidian is a natural glass. Moldavite is a natural glass. Um, and these have what we call a, a uh, more chaotic kind of arrangement of, of internal stuff. Um, we might see what we call short range order. If you like zoom in on a cluster of atoms or molecules inside glass, they, they seem to be arranged in a very orderly way. But when we zoom out, we see that that chunk doesn't connect anything else. So there's no orderly structure from start to finish. We don't have that sort of repeating tessellating pattern that that happens through and through. Um, and that, that's what separates a, a true crystal from a glass. Now that being said, most of the like drinking vessels and things that we see called crystal are in fact leaded glass, so they get the name crystal because the the tiny amounts of lead or other metals that are added increase their um, refractive index. They tend to be cut by hand as well to have those beautiful planes and faces, so they refract light so much more uh, resplendently than your average piece of glass. And that makes them more expensive, so Um, that's, that's part of why mom doesn't want us drinking out of the good stuff every day.
0: That makes so much more sense. I appreciate that explanation. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about the animism you brought up you being an animist. Um, and we have a whole episode on animism, but Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to kind of get into the nitty gritty of what it means to think of crystals and minerals from an animist perspective, uh, do you have any any insight or any sh- anything to share on that?
2: You know, this was something I was just chatting with a friend of mine who's a process geologist, by the way, getting ready to start her PhD. Um, and she's, yeah, she's one of us, don't tell, um, but- We're everywhere. Even, even if you just look at like, the terminology used by science to describe rocks and minerals and such, you see a surprising, like a startling amount of personification there. We talk about the matrix, the host rock inside which minerals form. Matrix comes from Latin. It means womb. It comes from the same roots as the word mother and matter for that matter. Um, if, we, if we look at geological formations in the landscape, they're, they're named after people, places, parts of the body um we we've got so many things going on that that kind of suggest there is a sort of essence or life whether that is the the timeless search for meaning in the world around us trying to project a a human relationship onto things or maybe a pure perception of the indwelling logos or spirit that's in all matter i personally believe that it's probably somewhere between the two we've got this intersection of like the humanity being projected outwards and then that raw perception of the spirit world all around us. And the thing we can't quantify is how we have that spark, where it comes from, but there's no way that you could pick up a translation of like a fifth century uh, lapidary work written in Greek or Roman and then pick up a book on crystals that was channeled in 1982 um, from someone who'd never read a work on crystals before and, and see like the same terminology describing things like amethyst and carnelian. If there wasn't some absolute reality, some sort of ineffable spark, some animating force that, that ran through all amethysts, all carnelians, all anythings. And that is where my fascination has always been. Like where are the patterns emerging from? If, if we can have people in such different times and places and life circumstances arriving at similar properties for things, whether it's the same stone or maybe things that are um, related chemically or structurally or other things, then then there has to be some reality here. And maybe I can't measure what's causing that, but I can, I can see the effects. And if I can see the effects, that's measurable and repeatable. And, and that's kind of like magic, right? You know, we can't quantify what magic the energies are in a sciencey way but if we couldn't repeat the experiments and get the same results then we wouldn't keep doing it so yeah that's really true yeah like i like to think of magicians occultists witchy people as as engaging in a kind of science it is a down and dirty kind of science we don't necessarily know that we're always following the scientific method and i wager a lot of us aren't because we aren't trained in it. Um, but the fact that we are looking for repeatable end results, that's something that is very science-y. Um, and I, th- I think part of how we see consistent results is that there obviously has to be some force that ties it together. And in, in rocks, I believe, in a sort of electromagnetic, like physics-based model, but there's still something above and beyond that, and that's, that's the soul that's the spirit, that's the indwelling force. And that's why getting in touch with our landscape is so important. In tradcraft and folk-based witchery, we see a lot of emphasis on like the spirits of the land, the genius loci. What do we think the land is? Like it is the sum total of things. And that sum total is built upon the geosphere. There is rock beneath us. Or, you know, if you're in Florida, like I am, it's like Swiss cheese of rock and water, but it's still rock and the essence, the spirit, the energy, that ineffable quality that we feel in any given space is informed by and held by the stone beneath us, as well as all the living and non-living spirits that are there, but it is literally rooted in stone. And that's a really great example of how the geology affects the, the spirit of place.
1: That is so fascinating that you brought that up. And I'm so happy you did because that was actually the direction that I was just going to take it Um, because I was gonna ask, I was like, can we just get really esoteric with each other for a second? Um, But I I think that's fascinating that you and I were just kind of like honing in on the same thing and then our parallels connected. Um, In speaking about the spirit of places, um, I know your work is really crystal you talk about crystals a lot but aside from that you also speak on minerals as well as metals and and it goes beyond just like crystals I think when we think of of minerals we think strictly gems and and crystals and things like that but it really is dirt soil metal mineral things that are not so sparkly or shiny or faceted or pretty. And I think it's really interesting when we speak on the spirit of place, you're right, it, it resides within the soil and the stone that is under our feet. And I think that's really, really fantastic. In speaking of like, I know um, I've been going on like a necromancy tangent, uh, I think a lot on uh, Instagram lately, uh, because it's been really important especially this time of year in tapping into not only the spirits of dead humans but also the spirits of dead plants that are encapsulated by mineral by mud by soil and being able to and like I said we're gonna get really esoteric here for a second very poetic but like being able to conjure forth those memories in the land and Um, tapping into the spirit of that place it really is like digging through soil um I don't know where I was going with that besides like do you have any experiences um and you don't have to go like super personal into them but like I I just want to like compare notes with each other and you know see if like is it really just digging through, spiritually digging through soil and kind of like reviving some of that spirit or some of those memories? I really like
2: that imagery. Um, even if we want to like translate that, you know, we think about the organic things that break down to make up our, our fertile soil, but even the, the tiny bits of rock that are in the soil, the actual particles of sand and clay and and other things, they are the remains of ancient rocks that have been weathered just like the remains of living things. They've been transported across the sands of time. They are the sands of time. Um, And there is this kind of quality of, of decay and out of decay rebirth. So, you know, you can take host rock, you apply to it some change in its environment, whether that's mechanical weathering rain, wind, sun, sleet, hail, snow, whatever it is that's eating away at the rock or chemical weathering, changes in acidity or, or other fun stuff. I won't get too sciencey here, but um, we, we get those little particles that come off and they, they travel. They, the longer they travel, the smaller they get, the better sorted they are. And over time, they begin to accrete. They, they solidify into new rock. And the, the new sedimentary rock is born out of other things that have had to die to get there. And if that isn't a great example of necromantic arts, I don't know what else could be, at least in terms of the the mineral kingdom. I mean, heck, we find fossils as a result of sedimentation and and similar things. And they're the literal remains of once living things um, that have been transmuted in a way into crystal, into rock, into mineral. And I think that when we get in touch with The fact that you go into the backyard or into the cemetery at night and you dig your hands into the earth, we're holding the remains of so many forms of life. And I'm gonna use life in a more poetic sense, not just living biological factors in the environment, not just, you know, Aunt Lucy who's buried here, but the stones themselves gave up their bodies to be part of the landscape. Whole mountains have been eroded away. I mean, the beautiful white quartz sand beaches you find in parts of Florida that quartz came from the Appalachian Mountains a long time ago. Those mountains are ancient. Think of those as individual bones that went into the bodies of those mountains. There there is a kind of necromancy there, not just tapping into the spirit of place where it's at now, but like, where did it come from? How did it get here? How did whole landscapes evolve and transpire to get to the point where we're at now? And I remember having this moment when I was working on um, my fourth book, Stones of the Goddess, that it was like I had this image shown to me of, of not just the moving of landscapes, literal changing of mountains and rivers and coastlines, but the coalescing of every ancestor all the way back to the beginning. All of those things had to happen in just the right way for me to be where I am today. You change one little thing. Like the universe moved mountains to get me here. The universe brought these connections of uncountable generations of humans to, to result in there being a Nicholas on this earth. Like how incredible is that? But I couldn't be here without, without being able to walk on the remains of everything that came before me. And that kind of necromantic work is in a way honoring the spirits of land, honoring the spirits of the inhabitants of the land, human, animal, vegetable, mineral. Um, And I think there's a really profound work that comes in honoring those endings because at that threshold, there's also new things coming.
0: This concludes part one of our interview with Nicholas Pearson on Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. Stay tuned for part two on February 1st.
1: Southern Bramble is a Patreon supported podcast. We'd personally like to thank our top tier Patreon supporters by name. The Witch of Elfame, Timothy, The Lady Ghost, C Shaw, Pamela, Nicolette, Mandy, Keith, Key, Josie, Jens, Kaliak, of course Anastasia Beaverhausen, and Adity. Thank you all so very much.